your passports, please. Enjoy your trip. This is Bourbon Abroad. Round the world, one pour at a time. It's that brown water, man. It's, it's the juice. <laughs> the elixir of life. There is good bourbon to be found while abroad. Welcome to Bourbon Abroad, the podcast that travels the world one pour at a time. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. And we're so glad that you could join us for our second episode on Paris. Now, last time we talked about the history of Paris, the cultural sites, the museums, some of the restaurants. But in this episode, we're going to talk more about the cocktail bar and speakeasy scene. The nitty gritty. The nitty gritty, exactly. We're going <laughs> to get into the history of cocktails in the city. We're going to go to Red Door, Moonshiner, Fitzgerald, Experimental Cocktail Club, and Golden Promise. But Mike, before we get into that, how would you characterize the cocktail and speakeasy scene in Paris? Paris has a very robust and healthy cocktail scene and speakeasy scene. They are overwhelmed with speakeasies. Every time I'm there or if I'm just researching the city, it seems like there's more that just keep popping up and they're getting more inventive and putting them in different places. There's one you have to go through a laundromat, through the dryer, and they have a very healthy cocktail slash speakeasy scene going on in Paris. Well, I'm really excited to hear about some of the places that you were able to go. But before we get into that, I thought it would maybe be a good idea idea to consider the history of cocktails in Paris. I don't know many other cities except for New York and London that have played such a role in developing the art of making cocktails. I just want to read mm -hmm. this list to you. The Sidecar, the Boulevardier, the French 75, Mimosa, Between the Sheets, Death in the Afternoon, Bloody Mary, although that's disputed, White Lady, Blue Lagoon, 1789. All of those cocktails invented in Paris. And the crazy thing is, so many of them involve just a couple of establishments, Harry's New York Bar and the bar at the Ritz Hotel. Yeah. The legends and the myths that are associated with those two places are kind of crazy. And it all goes back to the 1920s. And a lot of them center around one guy, and that's Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. So <laughs> who was yeah. a guy who really liked his cocktails, whether he was in Paris or Cuba or New York or on safari in Africa somewhere. Didn't really matter. He didn't really need an excuse to drink. He probably had a problem. Well, no, he did have a problem. But yeah. um, you didn't get a chance to go to Harry's, did you? No, I didn't. I did not get a chance to make it to Harry's as of yet. Well, that's one that's definitely on my list for a couple of reasons. One, it is that classic American bar overseas. Mm -hmm. So it really ties into everything that we've been talking about, you know, bourbon abroad. And you look at the story behind it. They actually dismantled a bar in New York, in Manhattan, 7th Avenue, packed it up, 1911, ship it over to Paris, put it together. And at first, the guy who's behind it is some famous jockey. It got the name Harry's, from the guy who worked at the bar and then later bought it in 1923. His name was Harry McElhone. And it was during that time in the 20s where guys like Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Jack Dempsey, 
the composer, George Gershwin, Rita Hayworth, Humphrey Bogart, all of these celebrities, movie stars, writers, you know, if they're in Paris, they want to be at Harry's. Yeah, and if they're American, they couldn't go get a drink, a proper drink in the States during that time with prohibition raging, you know, without finding a speakeasy or doing it on the down low. So and it wasn't even Americans that recognized Harry's as being that top level purveyor of cocktails. Ian Fleming, when he was creating the character of James Bond, mm -hmm. Harry's was the bar in Paris, where James Bond would go in his book, A View to a Kill, which did not include Christopher Walken or Grace Jones, just to be clear. But you know, I talked about the Bloody Mary. Right. And Harry's is supposed to be one of those places where the Bloody Mary was invented. Now, it's disputed, and there's some controversy there. But the cool thing is, and I think you'll enjoy this story, because it ties back into where we're both from. The guy who was the bartender at Harry's was a Frenchman named Fernand Pedio, and he's one of the claimed inventors of the Bloody Mary. Now, he made it famous when he was later the head bartender at the St. Regis in New York. He was making drinks for presidents and celebrities and everybody right. like that. But he starts off at Harry's. And the crazy thing is, you know where he ended his career? Uh, I do not. Fernand Pedio ends his career in Canton, Ohio, which yeah. is like right in between <laughs> where you and I both grew up. Yeah, that's where I was born. I was yeah, born okay. in Canton, Ohio. Yeah. Football Hall of Fame. Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> he married some woman from Canton, uh, I think it was in the 20s or 30s. And when he retired from the uh, St. Regis in New York, he settled there and they said you could find him pouring cocktails at this downtown restaurant up until he died in 1975. He'd just come in for a couple of nights and, and do his yeah. thing at Murgus's restaurant downtown. And the dude who invented, possibly, maybe, I'd like to believe he did, the Bloody Mary. The most famous brunch cocktail, breakfast cocktail ever, probably. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool story. But then there's another bar in Paris, and I don't know if you got to this one either, the Hemingway Bar. Nope, that's another one of the ones that's, that's on the list for next time. So, quick story about the Hemingway Bar. Named, of course, after Ernest Hemingway, but mm -hmm. long after he was dead. It was another bar in Paris where he would hang out in the 1920s when he was living there. It was called the Ladies' Bar back then. Guys were allowed to go in it, even though it was originally the bar for women at the Ritz Hotel. But he would go in there and hang out on like Saturdays and Sundays and make bets on sports with the bartenders and uh, stuff gotcha, like yeah. that. Plus, if it was the Ladies' Bar, then... You know, that's a good place for Hemingway to also hang out. I'm right. sure he uh, I'm sure he chose that bar for a specific reason. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't his wife. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or it wasn't for the current wife, sometimes for the future wife. Yeah. That he was yeah. lining up, you know. Yeah, that's uh, more likely what it was <laughs> along the line. But um, flash forward to World War Two. It's 1945. The Nazis have been using the Ritz Hotel as their headquarters in Paris. Hemingway is working as a war correspondent. Paris is about to be liberated. This is totally against all journalistic practice, but Hemingway gets himself a Jeep and a machine gun and talks somebody into giving him some resistance fighters from the French underground because he decides he's going to liberate the Ritz Hotel. <laughs> so he rolls, wearing a uniform, rolls up on the place, you know, the, the Germans are long gone. They've they've left the city. And he uh, just ends up staying there. And he runs up a tab of 51 martinis <laughs> at the Ritz. 
during the time mm. that he's there. And he gets a little, yeah. little hot water for it. Yeah, I'm sure. But it goes to the legend. He was really there to liberate uh, some gin and vodka. <laughs> Later on, because of his association with that bar, they end up naming it the Hemingway Bar. And it's considered one of the best bars in the world, certainly one of the best bars in Paris. And just to wrap this story up about Paris, the 1920s, and how... Ernest Hemingway is kind of at the center of this. Back in the 1920s, it's like 1928, he leaves two suitcases in the Ritz Hotel, loses mm-hmm. them, doesn't find them. Not till 1957. He still comes in there for a drink when he's in the city, likes to stay there. Well, the owner, he's having dinner with the owner, and he's like, you know, we found something of yours recently. Remember those suitcases that you lost? Well, we have them. 30 years later, they show up. 30 years. Yeah. But here's the thing. What was in one of those suitcases were all of his journals and notes from the 1920s when he was in Paris. And he uses those to write a movable feast. That book really helped to cement that legend of Paris during that time period and places like Harry's New York Bar and the Bar at the Ritz. It's really a record of that time period and the culture of cocktail making in the city. And if those suitcases never got found... Uh, we probably wouldn't have that. So Yeah, yeah, that's the, cool. Full circle. Full circle. That's probably enough history for the day. I'm going <laughs> to take my professor coat off, and when we come back, we're going to get into the here and now. And I think the first place we're going to touch on is Little Red Door, which has been yeah, climbing the charts in the uh, best bars in the world. But we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Bourbon Abroad. Welcome back. You're listening to Bourbon Abroad. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. And you know, during the break, Mike, we were talking a little bit about how this is National Bourbon Heritage Month. I know you got a chance to do something special today. You were displaced by the hurricane. Why don't you tell us about that a little bit? We uh, evacuated out of the Tampa Bay area and went up to St. Augustine for a couple of days just to kind of get away from Hurricane Adelia. We left there today to come home. So we swung by the St. Augustine Distillery and being National Bourbon Heritage Month, they were doing a little, running a little special thing. So the distillery opened in 2014 and they basically held back a couple of barrels from that first batch that they had distilled and they've been holding on to them. And so this year, this, so it's been like eight and a half years now, they're offering it a single barrel and you could fill your own bottle. So I did a bottle fill with their uh, it's cask strength, 122.7 proof from barrel 141. And they're they're like barrel 5,000 and some now. It was nice. It was enjoyable after being displaced and having to deal with the stress of going through a hurricane. It's like, hey, what better way than to celebrate with a, a little distillery tour and fill your own bottle and get some good bourbon. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. yeah. So when we left off, we had been talking a little bit about the history of cocktails in Paris. But when you were there, you were able to go to some places that are really on the cutting edge of the cocktail scene now. Yes. And I know one of those that you've been to a couple of different times is Little Red Door. Tell us a little bit about that place, what it's like, and how it's changed. 
So the first time I went was in 2017. At that time, even, it was a highly ranked bar on the, on the world scene. In 2017, it was ranked number 11 in the 50bestbars.com list. Mm-hmm. Even then, no slouch, but it was billed as a speakeasy. It was difficult to find. It was my wife and I and another couple. We called it Uber. It was kind of very similar situation to what happened uh, when we went to 1930 in Milan. Got an Uber driver, told him the address. He asked what we we're going. And we told him that, you know, there's a cocktail bar and he had no idea. It was like, that's, you know, that's just a residential area. There's nothing out there. You know, mm-hmm. it's a dead area. We're just like, well, I've done some research. And he's just like, okay, I'll take you there. So we actually drove past it. And we're like, we think it's there. So he circles around and he's just like, all right, look, I'll drop you off here, but there's nothing here. This is all, you know, residential. Sure enough, we're basically just kind of wandering up and down the street. The front door to Little Red Door is in like a portico. Okay. You can't see the door. You can't see anything. So we just walked right past it multiple times. So we turned the corner and there's there's like five or six, you know, younger 20 something people. And we're like, look, if there's a bar in this area, they would surely know. So we asked them. Like, hey, you know, we're looking for a little red door. And they're just like, oh, yeah, you walked right past it. It's right there. So we go back and not surprisingly, the front door is red, but the door is only about maybe five feet tall. Okay. And we'll have a picture of this on our website so that everyone can see what it looks like. It's got a small window. I look in the window. I can see the bar, the bartender. I can see people inside, but the door won't open. I'm knocking on the door, banging on the door. It doesn't open. (laughs) Did you put your feet on the door and your hands on the handle and and pull? (laughs) I did not. Because I've seen that move before too. <laughs> I didn't try that one this time. Okay. But we can't get the door to open and no one's even acknowledging that we're outside the door. So my buddy's like, well, you know, try this, try that. And I'm like, hey man, you want to come up here and try it? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. So I turned sideways to get out of his way and I lean back against the wall and the wall behind me moves. It's like a pivot door. Okay. Like in an old yeah. movie, like like uh, Young Frankenstein or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like a trap door. You yeah. know, I lean back against the wall thinking I'm going to get out of his way so he can try to mess with the red door. And I lean back against the wall and the wall moves and I fall inside, literally stumbling <laughs> backwards. There's a table, a couple of gentlemen sitting there enjoying a cocktail. And I actually sit down on one of their laps, just <laughs> stumbling backwards and just... <laughs> sit right down. You know, I'm just like, oh man, I was so embarrassed. You know, and the whole bar kind of stops. They're all looking at like, you know, here's the, you know, stupid American <laughs> stumbling in the bar, you know, but Hey, we found it. Right. So yeah. we found it. We sit down, we had a great time. Cocktails are great. They bring out this book and you turn the pages and it's literally art. And you basically pick a cocktail based off of how the art makes you feel. Okay. If you're not that adventurous, there was a key in the back. It would show you each picture and then it would explain to the ingredients of the drink. It never really gave you a name to the drink or, you know, but it did, it it did give you the ingredients to the drink. So I think the first round we cheated and we used the key and kind of figured out what the ingredients were. But then after that, we were like, all right, now, you know, they make, this is, this is good. They know what they're doing. The drinks are on point. So we'll trust them. And then we just started picking based off of the art and which picture we like. And it was nice. It was very successful time. The place seats maybe 30 people. Okay. Um, And when we were there that first time in 2017, there were maybe 10 people in there and uh, a lot's changed. 
a lot changed in six years. Okay. You know, they've, they've continued to climb the list, 50bestbars.com. So yeah, our, our next experience there was a little different. And when did you go back? So the second time we went back was in 2022. Okay. And what was the first thing that you noticed that was different? Little Red Door is in the La Marais neighborhood. Okay. Which last time I think you said was the up and coming new yes. hot neighborhood. Right. So in 2017, La Marais wasn't really a thing. And Little Red Door is is right there in the middle and probably has something to do with that being a jumping neighborhood. So I'm telling my friends about it. And this time we didn't take an Uber. We took the Metro. So we get off the Metro. So we turn the corner and we're about two blocks away. We turn the corner. There were about 25 or 30 people lined up outside the door. And there's a big burly doorman standing out front. That big spotlight shining on the red door, letting everybody know exactly where it's at. And I was just like, huh, well... I guess it's not a speakeasy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of depressing. The best way I can explain it is like that hometown band that, you know, you used to pay a $5 uh-huh. cover charge to watch them play at the local college bar. Uh-huh. And, and then, you know, they get a couple songs, they make it big, sign a record deal. Everybody knows who they are. And yeah. they're still a great band. You still like their music, but it's just different now. The intimate exclusivity is gone. Yeah. It'll never be like that again, you know, It'll never nope. be the same. Nope, it's like going to see the Black Keys for five bucks at the Beachland Ballroom in Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, you can't beat that. (laughs) They didn't sound great. It's grungy, but one of the best shows I've ever been to in my life. And now you got to pay hundreds of dollars a ticket to go see them in an arena. And are they better musicians now? Yeah, but it ain't the same as seeing that for five bucks and in a place that smells like sweat and beer. Yeah, so that was my experience Little Red Doors. You know, the second time, I mean, the the cocktails were still hitting, you know, they were on point, but the theme of the menu was different. Cocktails were different. You know, they're doing like some sustainability stuff and and doing like local farmers and farm to bottle and and using like organic ingredients, which is great, which I'm sure that's how they're continuing to elevate themselves up the 50 best bars list. But, you know, it was just a completely different experience. So they jumped from number 11 to number five on the best bars in the world. What do you think was behind that? So I do think a lot of it has to do with the different approach that they're taking. In my opinion, there's a little bit of a political element to that 50 best bars list, you know, Michelin and Perrier. And if you can do things to kind of like impress them, it's not necessarily about, are you really the best bar in the world or are you doing the right things to impress the right people? Okay. For example, our first episode was London. When I walked into the Connaught Bar, if no one ever told me that they were ranked number one, I didn't know anything about the 50 best bars list. That would have been one of the best bars, coolest bars that I've ever been in. Hands down. Just the the eye test. Okay. We talk about that on football. Mm -hmm. Oh, this guy's a great football player. He's blah, blah, blah. And then you see this other guy and it's just like, I don't care what the stopwatch says. That guy's faster. Mm -hmm. Like just the eye test. he, He caught that guy from behind. He's, he's faster. So, you know, I kind of do the same thing when I go in these bars. Yes, I use those rankings to judge which bars I want to visit. But, you know, I kind of go by the eye test and the taste test. And I'm not trying to knock Little Red Door by any means, but I've been to some other bars in Paris that I think are a better bar. At least on the Mike McMillan, uh, on the Bourbon Abroad list. Yes, in my opinion. Bars. That's right. my opinion. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's the great thing. Yeah. With any of these, from the type of bourbon that you like to the cocktails mm-hmm. that you like, yeah. it's about you. You shouldn't be drinking stuff to impress people. That's right. idiotic. Right. Who has money to do that? If you have yep. money to do that, I guess you could do that. But 
I'm not going to waste my money doing that. I'm going to drink yeah. what I like. Yeah. Like, hey, man, that, that bar in, in Florence, Rasputin, they made some killer umami cocktails. Not my thing, but somebody has to love them or they wouldn't have them on the menu, right? You know, exactly. So somebody, somebody's drinking them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned that they were doing like a farm to bottle or farm to cocktail thing. How are they doing that? So it was a lot of the ingredients they used. So it wasn't necessarily the spirits. It was the other cocktail ingredients. So like, for example, this time I was here, which I think they just revised their menu, but that menu they had, it was um, organic ingredients and the cocktails were based off of that ingredient. So they had tomato. So they found a farmer Mm -hmm. that only farmed tomatoes. Okay. And it was a small farm, local, all organic. They collaborated with that farmer, got some tomatoes from him and made a cocktail using the tomatoes from his farm. Is this Bloody Mary local? (laughs) (laughs) Not a question I've ever asked. Maybe I should. It was like that. So they would use these ingredients. They would build a cocktail around that ingredient. And it was some stuff that was like very unique. So when you're back in Paris, is that going to be a place that you visit again? I probably will just because they keep changing it up. After I was there the second time and I was initially, I was disappointed, but then as I've just kind of looked more into it and I'm following like the 50bestbars.com list and I see you can't just stay the same. It sounds like an interesting place where they're always experimenting and it'll be interesting to see how their ranking changes over the next Mm -hmm. few years. Definitely doesn't seem like there will ever be that quiet little speakeasy again. Too many people have found them, including... uh, listeners yeah, to this podcast. Their name is out. <laughs> the name is out. The name is out. And if you hadn't heard it before, you heard it on Bourbon Abroad podcast. I think this is probably a good place to take a break. And when we come back, I want you to tell me about some of the other places that you went yeah. in Paris. And I know at least one of them helped jumpstart the cocktail scene in Paris that had faded Mm -hmm. a little bit from those 1920s glory years. Uh, We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to Bourbon Abroad. Welcome back. This is Bourbon Abroad. I'm Mike. And I'm Shane. Now, when we left off, we had been talking about Little Red Door and how it's climbing the charts and also pushing the envelope of innovation and making cocktails. But Mm -hmm. that wasn't the only place that you've been in Paris. And I wanted to talk about some of those other cocktail bars and speakeasies just to get a flavor for what else is going on in that scene in Paris. I kind of break it up. There's a couple of different, there's just your traditional cocktail bars and then there's the speakeasies. There's a lot of speakeasies in Paris. And, you know, I've only been to two or three different ones, and there's probably 10 more that I've yet to experience. And then there's your your standard cocktail bars. A couple of the, the speakeasies, one's called Fitzgerald. Okay. And it's actually a, a restaurant. It's a great restaurant. It's not upscale, Michelin starred, but it's just a really quality French restaurant. They offer excellent wine choices, good food, the front of the restaurant's all glass. The doors open up, so it's kind of open air. Nice decor, Art Deco themed. It's named for F. Scott Fitzgerald because they have a speakeasy in the back of the restaurant. So it's got, you know, your kitchen doors, your swing kitchen doors, you know, that the wait staff go in and out of carrying the trays of food. 
They're leather tufted swing doors. So you go through the doors, the bathrooms to one side, and then the speakeasy is, is to the other side. And when you go through there, I mean, it's, it's like you're stepping in the great Gatsby. I mean, it's 1920s all the way copper tin ceiling. It's got the antique mirror bar back and it's got the leather armchairs. It's really nice. And they do great cocktails. What did you get when you were there? The first time we were there, my wife did a a mezcal margarita. Okay. But instead of a salted rim, it was salt foam. This big pillowy cloud of salted foam on top of it. Like that stuff that blows around at the beach? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Like the sea foam. Sea foam. Yeah, like sea foam. That'd be cool. Yeah, it was very good. I stuck with the classics. The first time I went, I actually had to have a little conversation with the bartender because I ordered a Manhattan and they made the Manhattan with dry vermouth. Oh, I like those. Oh, you like it like that? I like those. Yeah. Oh, man. Not me. You never make a dry Manhattan? (laughs) Yeah. So when when they bring it out, I'm looking at it and I'm like, this thing's the wrong color. <laughs> Something's not right. This is not a Manhattan. So I took a sip of it. Yeah, they use dry vermouth. You know, no complaints. No, you know, I'm like, okay. So I tried it. So then they came back and I asked the ingredients of the Manhattan. So then we just kind of had a discussion. You know, traditional Manhattan is sweet vermouth. And we kind of talked about it. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, yeah, so we understand that that is the way Americans like it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the French prefer the dry vermouth. So they tailored it to the taste of what most customers order. Yeah. So in that situation, I wasn't mad. I was like, okay, I get it. I just thought you guys didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> right. Right. But, but I mean, they didn't know what they're doing. They, they were just listening to their clientele. <laughs> right. And, and dry vermouth is the French style. Sweet vermouth is the Italian style. So not, yep. not surprising there. Although you should have been like, it's named a Manhattan cause it's made in America. That's right. <laughs> when well, you got a drink called the Paris, you can put what you want in it. Yeah, that's right. You can put whatever you want in the French 75, but don't mess with my Merck in Manhattan. (laughs) 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 So yeah, that place sounds cool, man. Yeah, it was cool. We really like it. And it's in the uh, the 7th RDC Mall, which is like our favorite neighborhood that we stay. So it it is a place that we frequent, kind of one of our go-tos. In terms of speakeasies being easy or hard to find, is it that difficult? You said you kind of go through those doors and... You know, it's not top secret. It's just if you don't know it's there and you pop in and have dinner, you'd never know it was there. Okay. It's not like check out our speakeasy, like at the bottom of the menu or anything like that. No, no. You know, because they also have a bar in the restaurant. Okay. So it's one of those deals where you just kind of got to act like you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Come on, Susan. We're just going to walk into the kitchen. And she's just like, are you sure you know what you're talking about? And I'm like, we're going to find out. And if they chase us off and ask us what we're doing, we'll just be like, oh, sorry, I don't speak French. I don't know where I'm at. Well, at least you didn't (laughs) clobber one of the waiters as they're coming out. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Knock a tray of food right in their face. So that's a cool place. Cool name, cool restaurant. And it has a nice speakeasy in the back. Another great speakeasy is called the Moonshiner. Okay. It's actually in La Marais. Okay. Also, just this little Italian eatery, brick oven. You go in, there's maybe five, six tables, little counter. I don't even think they sell pizza by the slice. I think you got to just order a whole pie. In my research, I found it said that if you do ask them where the speakeasy is, they will not tell you. Okay. They will just be like, you're in the wrong place. We don't know what you're talking about. But if you just act like you know what you're doing, no one will stop you. 
So I'm like, all right, this is going to be a leap of faith because the entrance to the speakeasy is through the freezer. <laughs> so you walk into this pizza joint and now you're just walking into their freezer door. If there really is no speakeasy here, one, I'm going to look like an idiot. And two, the store owner is going to chase you out with a broom for walking into his freezer. Right, right. So we get there and it's me and my wife and another couple's with us, some of our friends. And I hadn't even told them what we were doing. We walk in, open the freezer door, and we're getting like all kinds of stares from the people that are in there eating pizza because most of them don't know. There's like a family with their kids. It's mm-hmm. like nine o'clock. They all eat dinner real late over there. Right. They're just looking at us like, what are these people doing? You know, we walk into the freezer and the freezer is big. Okay. 12 feet deep. Okay. You got to completely go inside. You got to commit. You got to oh, go wow. inside the freezer and have the freezer door shut behind you. <laughs> And hope that there's really a speakeasy there and this isn't some ploy to get your organs. Yeah. And they're not like making, what is it, Soylent Green or whatever? Yes. Where they, oh, I wonder where their sausage comes from. <laughs> well, here we uh, chill the bodies first before we take their kidneys. It makes it all a little easier. <laughs> it's pretty dark. There's just the faintest bit of light. It looks like there's a door at the back. So we go open a door and it's like roaring 20s, tin ceiling and gold moldings and antique mirror. The bartender's got arm sleeves on. Awesome. Great time. Had a great time there. Pricing wise, same with Fitzgerald is pretty standard. 10 to 15 euros per cocktail. About the same as here in the States. They did all the classics, but then they also had like their own menu. Like what our friend Eddie said, you know, when I'm in places like that, a lot of times I'll just stick with the classics. Yeah. Manhattans were good there. They made it with sweet vermouth. So I didn't have to pull the bartender aside. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely an experience. The payoff is kind of worth the journey. That sounds very cool. That would be, yeah. I mean, because a lot of times with a speakeasy, you hope that what you find is a bar with quality drinks, mm-hmm. that they really know what they're doing, even if they're not super inventive. But with a speakeasy, it's the journey of getting there, finding your way in. And generally speaking, you're going to be secluded. You're going to be kind of off by yourself. So If you want to not be surrounded by a ton of people or a lot of noise. Enjoy the company that you're with. Exactly. A a nice private evening. That's where Speakeasy comes in, comes in quite handy. Yeah, because there's plenty of bars. I mean, like any big international city, there's plenty of bars where you can go stand shoulder to shoulder, knock down shots. Right. So finding like a a real high-end cocktail bar or a true Speakeasy where not a lot of people know it exists, those, those places are cool. That's that's good. I know that you also found a place that kind of helped reinvigorate the cocktail scene in Paris. Which place was that? So that is the Experimental Cocktail Club. They got a very interesting story. Four friends, lifelong friends that cut their cocktail chops in New York City and in London and late 90s, early 2000s. And they're just kind of like, what's the deal? Paris was this great cocktail city and we're behind what's happened. You know, we're just not on that same level as New York, a Manhattan or, you know, a London. So their goal was to get the cocktail scene in Paris reinvigorated. So they opened a place. It was one of the first mixologist owned craft cocktail bars in Paris. They've had some success. They've expanded. Now the parent company is called the Experimental Group. Okay. They do a lot of hotel bars kind of all over the world. I think they even have one in New York City now. The Experimental Cocktail Club, those bars with that name, um, they're in four locations. They have two in Paris. They have one in London, one in Venice, and then one in Verbeer, Switzerland. Side note, I'm going to go to the Experimental Cocktail Club in Venice in October. So nice. in, yeah, in about a month and a half or so. Well, yep. 
I, I look forward to that report. You said there were two locations in Paris? So yeah, they have the original, the Experimental Cocktail Club Paris, and then they have another bar called the Prescription Cocktail Club, or excuse me, the Prescription Cocktail Bar. Okay. And then it's also kind of done in that same prohibition era style, like back when you used to have to get a prescription right. to get your allotted whiskey for the month or whatever. So medicinal. kind of playing off of that. Yeah, the medicinal, medicinal spirits. Oh, my rheumatism, my knees. Oh, it's got this cough that won't go away. Only thing that shakes a little dry. Yep, (laughs) got that tickle, doc. It's back. Yeah, I've yet to experience the prescription cocktail bar, but the experimental cocktail club, very cool. And it is one of those bars where you are shoulder to shoulder, standing room only. But man, they they take pride in their cocktails. They have a great cocktail list. It's a cool experience. It's down this this little alley, very dark. The lighting is dark. You could really see like the lost generation. That'd be a place that they would love to hang out in, you know, go sit in the corner, post up in the corner mm-hmm. in this dark place where no one recognizes them and drink some good cocktails. Makes night yeah. remarks about the people coming in. And, and yep, yep. <laughs> use it in your stories later. Yeah, that just sounds about right. So yeah, but it, it was cool. It was good. While we were at the Experimental Cocktail Club, we actually bumped into a couple of the guys that we had met earlier that same evening at what is now probably my favorite bar in Paris. And that is Golden Promise. What makes Golden Promise your favorite? Golden Promise is a love child of La Maison de Whiskey. Okay. It's a whiskey tasting room and they have thousands of bottles of whiskey to wow. taste. A truly golden promise. It's not a speakeasy, but it is a hidden bar. And explain the explain the difference between those two. A speakeasy, there's a little bit of a journey, like for example, a moonshiner. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go through, it's kind of a little bit of, a, of an experience just to find the place, right? You know, usually there's some sort of puzzle you got to figure out to get into a speakeasy. Hidden bar, it's just a bar that's almost hidden in plain sight. Like you just would never expect a bar to be there. It's not that you have to like flip a switch or turn a key the right way or anything. It's just like back a dark alley and the door's right there. But you're like looking down this dark alley and thinking, man, I'm not going down that dark alley. Well, hey, there's a great bar down there, but it's hidden. Okay. So La Maison de Whiskey has another store. It's a sake shop that has Japanese sake and Japanese whiskey. It's called La Maison du Saki. Okay. At the back of the Saki shop, there's a black wall. There's a staircase going down to the basement. And the whole hallway and the back wall is painted black. And there's just gold letters that say Golden Promise. Doesn't tell you that it's a bar. Doesn't tell you what it is. So it's kind of hidden in plain sight. This is probably the best place to get a pour of whiskey in the city. And we have it in the basement of a Saki shop. Because that makes sense. You go down the stairs. And when you get to the bottom of the stairs, right at the bottom of the stairs, there's a bar. And to the right side of the bar, there's like a lounge, you know, with couches and armchairs and everything. Then to the left, there's like an old dungeon door. And that is where they have the whiskey tasting. You got to basically ask the bartender like, hey, you know, I want to do a whiskey tasting. And they go and they knock on the door and there's like a curator inside there waiting for people. And he brings you in and hands you this leather bound I don't, it's just, it's the whiskey Bible. I don't know what else to call it. It, It's this leather bound book that lists all the stuff and you can go through it by whiskey types, you know, Scotch, Irish, Japanese, American, Canadian. Shane, it's the most extensive book 
menu I've ever seen. It wasn't just the sheer volume of stuff that they had you could try. They had vintages. Okay. Like Lagavulin from 1964. Stuff you're not, you're just not going to find anywhere. You're just not going to find it anywhere, which again speaks to the reach and the depth of knowledge that La Maison de Whiskey possesses when it comes to whiskeys, right? Whiskeys around the world and rare whiskeys. I mean, they had everything and they had the full Pappy lineup. They had the full BTAC Buffalo Trace antique collection lineup. And then they had different years. So they had the full Pappy from like 2015, the full Pappy lineup from 2010. Wow. Or you could do the Buffalo Trace. You could get William LaRue Weller from 2017, William LaRue Weller from 2012. William, I mean, he just, it was crazy, dude. It was amazing. I actually had a pour of Parker's Heritage, 11-year toasted barrel, something that is hard to find. Mm -hmm. They had Japanese whiskey. We did a Hakushu 18-year, just crazy, crazy stuff. It was by far the best pour I've had in Paris, probably Europe, and quite possibly even the world. There's still a lot of places out there I haven't found, <laughs> but I can't see anybody being better than this. Okay. As good as this, yes, but better than this, I man, I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to, to believe that. And also the, the curator, I guess I don't know what else to really call him. That's what he, He's like the librarian, or he knew that book inside and out. He would ask you, you know, what you're looking for. What do you like? Kind of like, okay, I have this. You like this? I have it. Or do you want to try something different that's similar to that? Okay, I, you know, I recommend this. In a place like that, you could do some damage in terms of prices. Yes. And that also played a role in the, in the selections I made. I could get this one thing that is a unicorn and then uh, I'm tapped out. Right. Or I could get these three things that cost the same as that one unicorn. <laughs> Right. Give me an idea of the range in prices. Oh, uh, you could get, I mean, they had Buffalo Trace, you know, so you could get a poor, you could get a, a 10 euro poor, or you could spend 1500 euros. <laughs> like I said, they had the vintage stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had. Did they have some of them like ancient Macallans and Yeah. All that they, stuff? And they had yeah. like 25 year, 35 year. And then they have, um, there's a turntable. So not only is the curator. You're the li- the whiskey librarian. Not only is he helping you figure stuff out, but he's spinning vinyl. Oh, man. And he's playing like classic tune. You know, he's playing like old school stuff. And that part where the, the whiskey tastings is, it's in the basement. So it's the old stone vaulted barrel mm-hmm. ceiling. Yeah. So you really feel like you're in a cellar. And then they built bookcases along the lower part of the walls, bottles of whiskey all around you. And I think we have photos of that will be on the website as well. Yes. Yes, we do. It's pretty epic. That's a pretty epic place. And the bar itself is a spectacular bar. The bartenders were probably the two youngest bartenders I've ever seen anywhere. They looked like they were 12. And man, they knew so much. They had me try a couple of French whiskeys, okay. which were very interesting. Very interesting indeed. And, you know, we were just kind of going back and forth, you know, spitballing ideas. They made me a chocolate old fashioned with E.H. Taylor rye. Oh, nice. Straight rye. Yeah, it was, it was good. Now it was chocolate, like chocolate bitters or how do they incorporate that? It was chocolate bitters. And then they also cast chocolate spoons. So when they serve the presentation, when they give you your cocktail, the cocktail cherry is in the spoon and the chocolate spoon is sitting across the top of your drink. Okay. So you can drop your cherry in, you can stir your drink with the chocolate spoon. We have a picture of that on the website as well. 
All right. That's probably my favorite place that I've found probably in all my travels so far. Now in the dungeon do whiskey or whatever that places with the uh <laughs> the curator i mean is there a time limit no so you oh. could just like hang out there as long as oh man i went twice the first time i went was just my wife and i the second time i went was after our friends joined us yeah i mean we were probably there three four hours each time just chilling you know hanging out enjoying the music talking with the curator how i came to know of golden promise is i went to la maison de whiskey a couple of times it was close to where we were staying And I kept seeing one of the same, the sales guy, I ran into him two or three times. And then he was just like, you know, you, you really like, you know, you know, bourbons and and whiskey. And I'm like, yeah, man. And kind of talking to him and he reaches under the counter and pulls up this business card. The business card's all black and uh, it's got gold lettering on it that says golden promise. And he's just like, you got to check this place out on the backside. There's a phone number. So I call the phone number, talk to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is where we're located. You know, again, it's not a speakeasy, so it's not secret. It's just hidden, so it's not advertised. And it's been there for a while. But I've been to Paris multiple times and had never heard of it, never knew anything about it. I'd showed my face around the store enough times that they were like, hey, let's let this, <laughs> we need to take more of this guy's money. Like, I have to say, Paris sounds like a pretty fantastic city. It is. It is. I haven't been there twice myself. I know it's a remarkable city, but when I was there, these types of places, if they existed, they weren't on my radar. They weren't places that I even knew about. We're talking traveling before smartphones. It would be really cool to go back and check some of those places out. Just so you're aware, my wife is already putting the bug in your wife's ear. So I'm sure she is. It's, (laughs) It's not, it doesn't take a very big bug. We might have a uh, Mike and Shane go to Paris episode. I, I can do that. And if we do, we got to hit up the Hemingway bar and Harris oh, yeah. New York bar. But Definitely, for sure. We also got to find some new and out of the way and hidden places, even if it means going through freezers or closets or <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. We'll, we'll find those places and tell you about them here on Bourbon Abroad. Now, our next episode, we're going to finish our trip to Italy, right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. We're going to pick up with Rome. That's something for all of you out there to look forward to. And in the meantime, you can head over to bourbonabroad.com where you can find photos of the places we've talked about today, as well as links to those places. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, The Bourbon Abroad Bulletin. For Mike, I'm Shane. We'll talk next time as we travel the world one pour at a time. The Bourbon Abroad Podcast is a production of Bourbon Abroad and Corduroy Coat Media.